church. It's great to be with all of you again this morning, and we have a good reason to celebrate today. It was over a year ago that uh, we had a family in this church that got a diagnosis of cancer, and they have been working through all that that entails, and God has blessed this family because I'll tell you, friends and church members and so many have ministered to them. They've been only able to come most of the time when we've been having outside services. But if you didn't notice today, Kathy and Tony Smith are back with us, and we welcome you back home, guys. We love you so much, and I hope that you know how much this church loves you. I hope you realize that more prayers have been prayed for you than you could ever, ever imagine. So welcome home. We love you, and we're glad to see your face today, sweetheart. And you too, Tony. Uh, I want to make sure you didn't think I called you sweetheart. I just wanted to clarify that. Today, we are in the book of 1 Corinthians once again. And as we get into the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and as we continue on this journey that we've been in, I told you the next few weeks we're getting into some pretty serious stuff as far as just stuff that we're just going to have to be blunt about. We're just going to have to talk about issues that normally don't get talked about in church. And today is one of those days. It's one of those Sundays where we're going to be talking uh, in detail about issues concerning marriage, concerning sex inside of marriage, concerning the issues of divorce. And there are so many things in this chapter that we need to understand as a church body. Unfortunately, I would say most of you have probably grown up in church, have been in church, at least uh, many of you for years of your life, if you didn't grow up in church. And literally, most of you probably never heard this chapter of the Bible taught. Uh, most times, pastors aren't going to choose this Bible because they're going to say sometimes, they know what, there's just too many landmines in it. Well, folks, there can't be landmines when we're talking about the truth of God. Amen? Amen? Every bit of the Bible needs to be taught. Every bit of the Bible, whether, <laughs> whether we agree with it, whether it's culturally uh, sensitive or not, the reality is that we have to speak about the things that matter to God because much of what is going on in our country, much of what is going on in our churches, much of what is going on in our culture, in our society, that is really killing us. Because never forget, that's what sin does, right? It destroys, it rips apart, it kills. It's because the church somehow has lost its voice on issues and topics that it needs to be speaking to because the world certainly is. And so today is absolutely no different. We're in chapter 7 of the book of 1 Corinthians today, and I just want to jump right into it because there is a lot to discuss this morning. So chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, listen to what it says. This is a teaching on marriage from the Apostle Paul. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. If you remember, we said early on in this letter that we have two letters to the Corinthians, but we know that there were other letters that were written, uh, some that, that Paul wrote and other that the Corinthians wrote to Paul. So he was writing in response here to something that the Corinthians had spoken to him about, a question that they had asked. And you can see the question here as we move forward. It says, I'm uh, con uh, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And here's the statement. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried as to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give this, these instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave the husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the, uh, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, and now, but now they are holy." Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. So I direct in all the churches, was any man when he was already circumcised, or I'm sorry, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you were able also to become free, rather do that. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. There is a lot of stuff to talk about in that text today. So we're going to give it a shot and we're going to get moving through. This morning, the first thing that I want us to see, the first thing that I want us to talk about is the sexual responsibilities within marriage. Now, here is the truth. Again, a topic that you don't hear much discussed. If you do, it's usually going to be in a marriage retreat or something like that, but it really needs to be shared on these Sunday mornings, this topic and this discussion about what God has to say about sexual responsibilities. And when we talk about sexual responsibilities, you can see first and foremost that when we use that term, what we are saying is God's plan for sex is within Marriage. We don't talk about sexual responsibilities outside of marriage because sex is meant for marriage. In the beginning, you see here in the very first verse that we look at, you can see the question that they ask me. Say, now concerning the things about which you wrote in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What happened in Corinth was that they're like us today. Have you ever noticed that we don't understand balance? That we love the right ditch or the left ditch? But we don't know how to stay in the middle of the road. We always tend, as people, to overreact. And what was happening 
in Corinth was Paul was trying to teach and tell the Corinthians that we understand the culture around you is sexual, uh, sexually driven, that it's almost sex crazy, that literally we talked last week that for them it was part of this pagan worship. Sex was everywhere, prostitutes every night coming out of the temples, down into the city, all of these sailors and merchants because this was a major port city, all this sin is going on. And so when you had these new believers who were trying to follow Christ and understand what it meant to be a Christian, Paul comes in and he begins to teach about sexual immorality. And so rather than listening to what Paul had to say and finding the understanding biblically that God had, they came up with the thing that most of us do is we go to the other extreme. So now they were saying, are you saying that it's bad to touch a woman? Are you saying that it's bad to touch a man? Are you saying that physical contact is a negative in God's economy and somehow sex is a bad thing, a negative thing, therefore we shouldn't ever touch a man or a woman? And Paul is going to say, absolutely not. The reality is that sex is a gift from God, but it's enjoyed and to be understood in the confines of marriage. Look at what he says in answer to their their question, is it good for a man or it is good for a man not to touch a woman? That's not Paul decreeing that somehow it is wrong, the physical touch or the sexual act. That's the conclusion that they came to. That's what they were trying to say. Paul, are you saying we can't have any contact? Is that what is good? Is that what is right? And you see that he says, listen, because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman let her have her own Husband, You see how he's taking sex and he's putting it in the right confines. He's saying that, you know what, it's a gift, but it's a gift inside marriage. It's something that is meant to be a blessing. In fact, we can't obey the most basic commands out of creation to be fruitful and multiply without that physical touch. He's saying that as married people, we ought to celebrate and really we ought to develop an intimacy between one another because, listen, the beauty of marriage is it is a gospel declaration. When we see marriage the way that it is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a picture of Christ and his church. Sex within marriage, folks, is a good thing. It's a great thing. It's something that God gave to us. And that's how he begins. God's plan for sex is within marriage. Outside of, outside of marriage, listen, he says that that is a perversion. That is taking the gift that God has given and using it in ways that he has commanded us not to use it, whether that's adultery, which is outside of marriage, which is fornication, sex before you get married. He says, listen, that is a sin. That is not God's intention. That is not God's plan. Because all the way back in the beginning, I want you to remember that when he created man and he gave to him Eve and he gave to him a wife, remember he said, for this reason, two shall become one. Marriage, right? And they will become one flesh, the consummation of marriage. Literally in the Bible, when it talks about knowing, that idea of knowing a person, and you see over and over it says to know the Lord, or they, and then you see it in the uh, context of sex. It says they knew each other. It is giving you the idea that this physical intimacy is meant to, or, or the act of sex is meant to draw you in to one of the most intimate relationships that you can have with another individual. And it is meant for one person for one lifetime. Now let me say that again. It is meant, marriage is meant to be one man. And one woman for one lifetime. Amen? Folks, culturally, that's not what we're saying. That's not what is being said outside of these walls. 
Number one, we don't even, we're not even able, it seems, to define man and woman anymore. But folks, I want you to know that God didn't create us in, in any way where we have the ability. I mean, think about what is happening in our culture today. They're saying that I can be anything that I want to be, that I can take what God has created and call it something different and live against the very way that he created me. God created people one of two ways. You're either a man or you are a woman. That's the Bible. That's the scripture. We were created in the image of God, man and woman. And he says that men and women get married and they consummate that relationship and that intimacy and that oneness begins to happen through the sexual act. And he says what God brings together, guess what? We're not to separate. Now, folks, that brings us to the discussion about is sex just a physical act? We talked about it a little bit last week, and we know that it's not just a physical act. It's a spiritual act. It's emotional. It, it, it entails the whole of our being, and it's not as easy as to say something, you know what, that sex is just physical, and we can have sex and then go about our way, and there's no connection to that person. No, the Bible literally says that you have become one. And imagine what that does to our soul. Imagine what that does to our hearts. Imagine what that does to our minds. Because even if we try to say that's not true, what God says is true is true. And we wonder why we suffer in our culture so much. Because we keep going outside of what God has planned for us. Now marriage is meant to be entered into for many reasons. First, it's to share a lifelong partnership and commitment to another person as we serve God together. Secondly, it's to cultivate mutual love. Third, God gave sex, obviously, so that we could reproduce the human race and that we could establish family, which is the most basic unit of life. It says here that God also gave sex, or I'm sorry, also gave marriage and gave sex to prevent sexual immorality, which we're going to get into in just a moment here. He says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband. And then we get into this discussion in verse 3, that not only do we see God's plan for sex within marriage, we see that we are responsible to fulfill each other's sexual needs. Now, let's be honest. The Bible is as practical as it can get right here. All of us understand the discussion that we are about to have here, but I want you to read it. I want you to understand it. The husband must fulfill, render his duty to his wife. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that, they, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. You could easily twist or you could easily ignore these verses and miss God's meaning and God's good design for marriage. When we talk about this issue of what it means to fulfill one another's responsibilities or duty, let me tell you what he's saying here. I don't want you to miss the broader picture 
of Scripture. You could pervert this. You could twist this. And we could all go around, you know, husbands like knuckle-dragging Neanderthals and just expect intimacy and sex from our wives. That's not what he's getting at here. You have to take all of Scripture to understand the role and the responsibility of a husband. In the relationship, what is the husband's primary responsibility? What's he called to do? Husbands what? Love. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Jesus Christ loves the church. You want to talk about what develops intimacy in a marriage. It begins with a husband who takes serious his role to love his wife. He's, he's selfless. He gives himself for her. He's patient. He's kind. I mean, go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and go and look at what it says there about what love truly looks like. Our responsibility, husbands, to our wives is to love them. And listen, you're not just walking up and saying, you know what, I have these physical needs and I want you to meet them, but I have no intention of meeting your emotional needs. I have no intention of loving you. I have no intention of treating you honorably and cherishing you the way that I committed to the way that the day that we got married folks you could pervert that and just think that we all have the right to demand of each other folks it's not as much the right to demand of each other what you will do for me but out of love saying to each other what can I do for you folks that's the difference of what God is requiring and listen there are many people today that live in a marriage that is sexless and we joke about it and we laugh about it and we say, well, that's just part of being married. That is not part of God's design for marriage. God wants his people to live in intimacy together. And I want you to see, I don't know how to make it any plainer that we are to fulfill our responsibilities to one another. And literally, it's the giving of oneself to the other. Isn't that what actually makes marriage beautiful? Isn't that what makes any relationship beautiful when we say that, you know what, I'm going to put your needs before my needs? I'm going to consider you before myself, that we live in a way that says to the other person, I will count you as more important than me. I will humble myself in this relationship and do what I am responsible to do for the sake of Christ, for the sake of this marriage. Now, the third thing, and this is what we too often do, is we weaponize intimacy. Anybody know what I mean when I say we weaponize intimacy? I mean, I want you to think for a second. Almost every couple at some point in their marriage have done this. To weaponize means to gain an advantage or defend oneself in a conflict or contest. I'm just going to say it as the only term we know how to use and say, let's at least talk in a way we're communicating. You ever threaten to cut off a spouse? That's what he's talking about here. That we weaponize intimacy. That we actually use it against the other person. We're not getting what we feel that we need, and so we cut them off in intimacy. We cut them off emotionally. We cut them off Physically, and the responsibility of a believer is not to live that way. So folks, if intimacy isn't what it needs to be in your marriage, let me ask you a question. Why are you not getting help? Why are you not reaching out to other believers who can walk you through the relational issues 
that you're having, one of the greatest signals that things aren't as they ought to be inside of your marriage is a lack of intimacy. Now, let me be clear, okay? None of us have the energy at 50 that we have at 20, okay? When we're very young and we don't have kids and we don't have careers, whatever, listen, when you're that young, it's just like a free-for-all, right? I understand, I'm not saying that it goes back to the way that it was when you were 20 years old, but listen to me. If it's non-existent, you have to ask yourself the question, why? What is going on in my heart? What is going on in this relationship that is keeping us from intimacy? And sometimes we find that it's not just an unwillingness to fulfill the other's needs. Sometimes we literally have weaponized intimacy and we're trying to get our way. I told you it was going to be an interesting conversation today, church. Ultimately, what I want you guys to hear is that God is telling husbands and wives, serve each other selflessly. Let your love for your husband or your wife be driven by the question, how can I please you? Not, here's what I want you to do to please me. It means that the wife looks for ways to honor and please her husband out of selfless love for him while a husband takes the lead and gently and lovingly pursuing his wife's good and his wife's pleasure above his own in such a way that they are both selflessly serving each other. I believe it's exactly what was meant in Song of Solomon, that the more a couple focuses on pleasing each other, the more enjoyment each receives in return. It's what Solomon meant, I believe, when he said, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Our desire is for each other. That's what intimacy ought to look like inside of marriage. And then he says, lastly, don't give Satan an opportunity. When we aren't faithful in intimacy within our marriage, understand that what you are doing is you're giving the devil a foothold. You're giving him an opportunity to ruin your marriage because somehow, in some way, those desires, those urges, if a man or a woman doesn't have the self-control that they need, they'll go to pornography. They'll go to another person. We'll just let the marriage fall by the wayside and that intimacy and that knowledge of one another that we're supposed to have, that growing love and commitment will fall to the wayside. And don't think that Satan wouldn't rather do, I mean, if he can get you one of the ways he wants to get you is through your marriage, through your family. If he can destroy it, he can destroy a country, he can destroy a culture. And over and over and over, history has told us that this is one of the very ways that as a country becomes increasingly immoral sexually, as the family begins to fall apart, and folks, look at what's happening to us today. He says, listen, when you continue to walk this path, you're giving the devil opportunity to destroy you. Now, folks, you can like or lump what I just said. You can like or lump what we just discussed. This isn't me. This is God's word to us. And I would beg you to heed it. I would beg you to consider it. I would beg you as husband and wife to go home and talk today because it says there may be a time and a season where you agree 
for good reasons, spiritual reasons, maybe to abstain, but he says it shouldn't be for long. Because intimacy matters in a relationship. Now, secondly, he goes on in verse 7 and says, that marriage and singleness, I love the way he, he transitions here because he says, folks, I want you to understand that you don't have to go to one extreme or the other. It's not an issue of is singleness more honorable, is marriage more honorable. What he's going to say, secondly, is that marriage and singleness, they are both a gift from God. In verse 7 he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I am myself, or I myself am. What he's saying there is that at this point in Paul's life, he's single. We don't know whether it's because his wife died. Most likely he was married at some point because he was on the Sanhedrin, and you had to be married to be on the Sanhedrin. It's very, I mean, I would almost say you can almost assume that he was married at some point, but for some reason, he's no longer married. And it doesn't tell us anywhere in the scripture why he's not, whether he was left by an unbelieving spouse as he came to Christ and his life changed so drastically, whether his wife abandoned him or whether she passed. It just doesn't tell us. But at this point when he's writing, he's saying, I'm single. And he's saying, listen, it is a gift for me. And, and one of the reasons it's a gift probably for Paul is because he has this calling on his life, which he's going to talk about later in the book. And he's going to challenge us that singleness provides for us opportunities that marriage never could in the sense that if God is calling us, think about his life. What is he doing constantly? He's traveling. He's not like us where we go to the Philippines and seven days we come back. Literally, he's gone months, years at a time, going place to place, doing the Lord's work, planting churches. And you can imagine how difficult it would have been had he still, for, had he still been married. But yet he says, listen, it is a gift. He says, I, I'm not going to hesitate to say that I wish that all of you were like myself, the way that I am. However, each man has his own what? His own gift. Listen to what he says. He calls both of them a gift. He said, my singleness is a gift. I'm comfortable in my skin. I'm comfortable with who I am, with where I am, where God has placed me and what God has done in my life. But he also says, listen, you have a gift if you're married, one in this manner and another in that. So he's saying whether single or married, it is a gift from God. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, that it's good for them if they remain even as I. So he says, listen, widows, it may be good that after a spouse has died, after you've become widowed, it may be good that you remain single. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He's saying, but listen, those who have that calling, those who've been given that gift of singleness, he's saying you have to remember that you have to commit to sexual purity in your singleness because if you're not going to commit to sexual purity in your singleness what does he say then it's better that you marry now a few things i want to say here is that again paul is saying to the church that a husband from creation is an illustration of Jesus' love where he lays down his life to love his wife. And the wife illustrates the church's love for Jesus by following the loving leadership of the husband. When we talk about marriage, marriage, it's, it's a gospel issue. I want you to see this morning how both marriage and singleness 
are made beautiful by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our marriages display what Christ's relationship to the church is supposed to look like. There is a purpose. There is a reason for marriage. It's meant to even be seen by the watching world how two people can love and be intimate with one another, can keep a covenant with one another, can be forgiving with one another, can be merciful, can be gentle, can be loving, can be kind inside a permanent relationship. Not where you have two perfect people, but you have two what? And not just in person, let's just call it what it is. Marriage is two sinners coming together. At least when we're talking about Christ and the church, one of us is perfect, right? And it's not us. Jesus is. Let me ask you a question. Is your walk with Jesus easy every day because he's perfect? Even just putting you in the equation makes it difficult. Marriage is two of you. <laughs> sinners. Seeking to walk together to grow in your faith. But let me, let me say this to you. The beauty of marriage is it is the anvil upon which God most shapes your life. Let me say that again. Marriage is the anvil upon which God will most shape your life. You will learn how to be like him as you seek to honor him in marriage. But what about singleness? We live in a world that says you need a spouse to be complete. Paul would say that's not true. We live in a world that says you have to have sexual activity to fulfill you. The Bible says that's not true. The biblical singleness, what it declares to the world is that neither of those things are true. Biblical singleness declares to the world that we are complete in Christ. Think about that. What if God called all of us in this room to be single? I'm just throwing it out there as just think about it a minute. Could you be satisfied with Christ and Christ alone? Because a person who has the gift of singleness, listen, they're going to be a demonstration to the world that you know what Christ is enough. All of my needs can be met with him. See, most of us, that makes us cringe a little bit at the thought of walking alone in this world. But listen, if he calls you to that walk, will he not sustain you in that walk? I mean, is that calling any different than any other calling in our lives that when he calls us, He's going to sustain us and give us exactly what we need so that we will find contentment in any and every situation. Isn't that what Paul would go on and say in other books of the Bible where he would say like to Timothy, I'm content in every situation. Whether I have much, whether I have little, whether I'm free, whether I'm enslaved, it doesn't make a difference. Paul said, no matter where I am, I am content. Why? Because he has Christ. So at the end of his life, he says, it didn't matter if anybody stood with me because you know what? The only one that mattered stood with me. <laughs> Singleness shows a heart that is content with Jesus, regardless of our marital status. Folks, the reality is, biblically, you want to know the truth? Marriage is passing away. This is going to shock some of you. I told you there's a lot of topics that are going to be kind of woo today. Most of us think marriage continues on into heaven. You realize that's not true. 
that in heaven, you know what brings us satisfaction to the point that we don't need spouses? Christ! Christ! We don't need the sun. He's our light. <laughs> He's our source of life. He is everything. And in heaven, this idea that we're going to be married and we're going to be reunited in marriage in heaven, that is not true because Paul is going to make statements. And listen, over in Matthew 22, they asked Jesus directly about marriage in the afterlife. And he says unequivocally, there is no marriage in heaven. You can see how he paints the picture of what matters in heaven. Jesus. Jesus matters in heaven. He will be the focus of our life and our worship. He will be our fulfillment. Singleness is not a state to be endured as you wait for something better. If you're married, marriage is not just an obligation you have to fulfill or an arrangement that you have to tolerate when you prefer something else. He says that shouldn't be our attitude towards singleness or marriage. We ought to be content exactly where God has put us because both marriage and singleness are a gift. It means if someone is single and gets married, then they exchange one good gift for another good gift from God. Or if someone is married and their spouse passes away, they exchange one good gift from God to another good gift from God. I love the way the missionary Amy Carmichael put it. She was a missionary to India, and in her singleness, this is what she said. She said, there is joy. Joy found nowhere else when we can look up into Christ's face. And when he says to us, am I not enough for thee, mine own? With a true, yes, Lord, you are enough. Lastly, I want to look at God's instructions to the married. He begins in verse 11 talking about this issue of divorce. And I understand as soon as I say the word divorce that for many in the room it uncovers wounds. Some from the past, some from the present. Some in your marriage. Some in your parents' marriage in the past. Divorce has touched all of us in some way and most of us in this room carry wounds from divorce. Different emotions differ across this room like hurt and sorrow and loss and disappointment, anger, regret, guilt, shame. But I want you to hear me this morning. The gospel meets us in our brokenness. And we have to have a real discussion on this issue of divorce this morning. I want you to know that nothing has ever changed. You know what God hates? The Bible says that God hates divorce. Okay? Do I need to break that down any further? He hates it. But listen, just like he hates any other sin, he hates divorce. It's the breakdown of the family. It is the tearing apart what God has brought together. And Paul is going to be sharing, this is the Lord speaking. He's not saying that some of this is my opinion and some of this is God's opinion. You can listen to God, but you don't have to listen to mine. All of this text is inspired by God. 
And what he's saying when he says, this is the Lord, he's referring back to Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus spoke concerning divorce. And Jesus was clear. Jesus was unequivocal. You can say, well, that was the Old Testament when it said God hates divorce. Go to the New Testament. Look in the book of Matthew. Look in chapter 19. And it says, beginning in verse 3, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said, listen to this, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. That's a hard teaching, isn't it? Somebody asked me when they saw this text, are you actually going to preach that? What else can I do? Skip it. That's how we got where we are, because churches skip it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to focus on the fact that, you know what, it matters, number one. Doesn't it matter who we marry so we don't end up in this place? Marriage is the single most important decision after coming to Christ that you will make in your life. It will set the course of your life, who you marry. And we ought to teach our kids that. Instead, it's just like, well, whatever, date whoever, you know, go out there and play the field. What are we doing? This relationship of marriage and commitment to one, it will make or break us in so many ways in our life. And I want you to see that he says very plainly, divorce is not God's plan. He says, well, can I leave my spouse if they're unbelieving? There are, let me just go ahead and say out the beginning here because we are running short on time. Let me just say this. There are two reasons the Bible gives for why a person can divorce. And only two reasons. Jesus gave us one in Matthew chapter 19. He said it's for the sake of sexual immorality, the sake of adultery in a marriage when the wedding bed is defiled and the marriage bed is defiled through sexual immorality. He says that that is a reason, a legitimate reason for which a person can divorce another person. But I don't want you to think that Jesus is saying, you know what, it's, it's a one and done thing. There's no room for grace. There's no room for forgiveness. I can tell you in this church, you are sitting beside people who have survived an affair and God has done what God says he'll do. You know what he says he'll do? I'll take broken things and I'll fix them. I'll take dead things like marriages, and I will bring them back to life. I can change hearts of people, though they've been broken and shattered. Let me ask you a question. When we say that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, in Christ and his church, was there ever any unfaithfulness on anyone's part? Hello, at church, are we awake? Has there been any unfaithfulness? On whose part? And who redeemed us and gave himself to restore Yes, 
And that came on the heels of repentance. And if a person will not repent, but will continue to chase down that adulterous affair, then he says, you have a way out of that marriage where there's no repentance. But if a person comes and repents, we ought to restore. And he says, secondly, he deals with the issue of an unbelieving spouse. What do you do if you come to Christ and the spouse doesn't want to be with you because of your commitment to Christ? He says to that, those who are believers, he says you stay in the marriage. You don't offer them a divorce. You don't step out of the marriage. Now he does turn around and say that, and I, it makes people wonder, is that what happened to Paul? That his wife left him over his faith in Christ. But Paul says here as well, he says, but if an unbelieving spouse, you can't help it if an unbelieving spouse abandons you. And he says to those who have been abandoned by an unbelieving spouse that you can remarry. Those are the only two, listen, those are the only two instances in the Bible that the Bible says you can be remarried. People are shocked sometimes because they come in my office and they say, Aaron, will you do my second marriage? And my first response is, you need to help me understand what happened to the first marriage. And I've said no as many times as I've said yes because I can't get up in a church and bless what God says is adultery. Do you understand? That's not me. That's me being obedient. And listen, when I say it's hard and it's hurtful and, 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 and this is within my own family I've had to say this and do this. And we can come up with all the things about, well, doesn't God want me happy? He wants you holy. He wants you to trust his word and believe his word. That if you've walked out of a marriage for any other reason than those two, he's saying to you, if you haven't already remarried, you should not remarry. You should either do one of two things, stay unmarried or fix the relationship with your spouse. Isn't that as plain as it can be? You say, well, what if I've already remarried? Does that mean I entered into an adulterous relationship by marrying, though I wasn't in one of those two things? You know what the hard answer is? Yes. But you know what the truth is, right? God doesn't tell you to turn around and get out of that marriage and do a double sin to fix the first. No, but here's the problem in America. We want to look at divorce and say it's not a sin. And if you find yourself in that position, what you need to do is repent of that sin and recommit yourself to never commit that sin again in the second marriage that you have, but to sit back and to say to God, what I did isn't wrong when he says that it is. Do you understand the damage that's going to do in your continued walk with him? Do you understand how when we take that attitude, it weakens the foundations of the institution of marriage that God says is holy? Holy matrimony, right? Isn't that what we call it? It's to be cherished. Not treated as common. It's, it's not a common thing. It's not a nothing. It's not just a little piece of our life. It is the core, the foundation of our culture, our society, our walk with God. It is the demonstration of the gospel to the world that, you know what? I have a Savior that will not leave me because I'm a pain in the rear end. Aren't you glad for that? That he won't leave me because I made a mistake and I've repented. 
And you know what? Sometimes it's the fourth time. And I'm struggling, but he loves me and he's forgiving me and I'm trying to walk with him and he's restoring me. Aren't you glad for that in your relationship with Christ? He says that's what we give to each other. And folks, there is healing and there is forgiveness. I don't want you to think for a second that I'm saying somehow divorced people are second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. You just have to go to him and be honest about where you are and let him redeem you and let him cleanse you and, and be honest about where you are and then recommit yourself. And for some of you today, the hard difficulty is you just heard me say, so if I'm divorced, I either have to reconcile or stay unmarried if it wasn't for one of those reasons. That's exactly what I'm saying. Because otherwise, what you're left with is, well, I know he says it's adultery if I get married again. And you know what? I'm just going to do it anyways. This is why it matters, church. This issue of marriage, why we have to take it so serious and make sure that we are making the right decision in who we marry and keeping our commitment to keep that marriage strong and to love husbands the way we're supposed to love and to respect wives the way we're supposed to respect and fulfill the roles and responsibilities that God has given us in marriage because when we do that, marriage is beautiful. It's life-giving. He says, don't leave an unbelieving spouse. And he just finishes the rest of this chapter with, you know what, bloom where God planted you. He says, when you came to Christ, he found you in a set condition, right? Some of you were married, some of you were unmarried, some of you were divorced, some of you were, I mean, he just goes the whole gamut. He's teaching us to learn contentment with where he has us in life. To let him be the focus, the center of it all. To let him have his way in us. And so he says, listen, if you're unmarried, be content. Be joyful in that singleness. And if God wants to give you the gift of marriage, then he will. Celebrate that gift. If he leaves you where you are, then bloom there. Start asking him, what are your purposes and plans for me? I've got a life where, you know what, I'm not tied down to all the commitments of this world that marriage brings. Listen, for those of us that have been single and then married, doesn't marriage come with a ton of responsibility? And he says, it'll sidetrack you from ministry and things that maybe God's called you to because he wanted you to stay single to do those things. Learn that wherever he has you, you can be content. So church, as the musicians come this morning, I, I want you to hear me say again, God's mercy is rich. God's forgiveness is available. His love for you is unending, and he's given us this gospel so that no matter where we are today, whether we have come out of a broken home, whether we are in a broken home, whether your marriage is solid or whether it's struggling and you're contemplating the things that we've talked about today, if you find yourself in these situations, which I would bet all of us find ourselves somehow in one of these things we've talked about today, then let Christ reign and rule. Do what he's asked you to do. Be faithful to what he has commanded of you and watch what God does to bring restoration to your heart, to your soul, to your life, 
to your family. The reason you probably are where you are today is because you have been and you are continuing to try to do this in your own thinking, in your own way, instead of going back and saying, God, what have you asked of me? And maybe you don't know Christ today. Listen, relationships are impossible without understanding Christ. Who he is, without him in your life, without the Spirit of God working inside of you, listen, you will continue to sin and you will continue to sin and you'll continue to break your life. It will continue to be destroyed and broken and death is what sin does to us. And the only way to be free is, from a, is with a relationship with Jesus Christ. He can bring healing and hope and help to your life. He wants to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you, to sanctify you, to set you on a path again. He says, if you will give me control of your life, I will lead you and make your life so beautiful. I will fulfill in you all that I wanted you to be from the beginning. But you have to repent. I'm a sinner. God, save me. I, I want to follow you. God, I'm going to let you be boss, king, lord, Savior of my life, I give you control, and I believe that because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross, because of his taking my place, dying for my sin, being buried, he rose again, and he promises life to those who will trust him. If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, then everything I just said to you today is probably an impossibility in your own strength and power. But with Christ, with Christ, he can forgive you and change you, and he can empower you to be exactly what he created you to be. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your love and your life. Lord, we thank you for your word that even when it's hard, Lord, it speaks to our hearts and it, it goes down deep into our souls. And Lord, it resonates. The spirit in us, Lord, that you've given to us in so many ways around this room is speaking to us about decisions we've made and choices that we've made and, and places where we are where our marriage are hurting and, and they're struggling. And Lord, we're asking questions. Where do I go? What do I do? Father, I pray that today in many ways some of those answers have been given. Your word is so practical. It speaks to the day-to-day -day life that we live. Father, mold us and shape us into who you want us to be. And Lord, today give us the courage to have a conversation with our spouses, to have a conversation maybe with our children about marriage and about all these things we've been discussing. Give us the courage to repent, to, to seek forgiveness. Give us the courage to go back and to make right what is wrong, to not give up easily on relationships because thank you, Jesus, you didn't give up on us. And Lord, if someone doesn't know you today, give them the courage to pray where they are about repentance and belief and surrender to you. And Father, give them the courage while everyone's praying to come out of that seat and to say, Aaron, I've given my life to Christ. I want to be baptized. I want to be part of this church body. If they pray and repent of their sins and they believe that Christ died for them and they surrender, Lord, you'll save them today. So do a work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen.